don't think I will even ask you to make Jesus Lord of your life. That's the most preposterous thing I could ever tell you to do. Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Whether you serve him or not, whether you bless him, curse him, hate him, or love him, he is the Lord of your life. Welcome, everyone, to the For the King podcast. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul was talking to Timothy and various other people he is including in this text, and, and this is what he says. When you come, talking to Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. So this is the monthly installation of the book review that we do here on the For the King podcast. And I read that verse and I like to include that in these book reviews because I would like to remind everybody how important books are to the Christian faith, how important reading is to the Christian faith. And ultimately God has revealed himself through words in a book, compilation of books called the Bible, 66 books, 40 different authors into one book, um, all about a story of redemption of what God is doing with, with um, his people and ultimately how he is glorifying himself and making him his name famous on the earth, even though we rebelled against him. So books are very important to the Christian faith. So I do this monthly book review um, to you know, share with you guys some of the things I'm reading, some of the books that I think are interesting and think are important and worth reading and um, hopefully maybe can uh, advise you guys to maybe pick up a copy yourself. And I imagine Paul, when he says also the books, I bet he had a bunch of, you know, different kinds of books. I bet he had poetry, ancient uh, Greek poetry, uh, the book of Enoch. He probably had Plato's Republic. He probably had all sorts of these different writings and uh, he found them valuable. But what he found of utmost importance, and I want to always emphasize this, is God's word, the Bible. That I always read these things in addition to my scripture reading. I'm never reading these things in isolation. So the first and the best book of this go around is Luther's Small Catechism. Martin Luther's Small Catechism. Um, it was a good read. I have a really old copy. Um, I don't exactly have a copyright, so I don't know how old this copy is, but it was on a an old um, book shelf um, at a uh, bookstore I was at, and I thought it looked cool, and I like Martin Luther and his writings, and I thought it was useful. Um, and it was really refreshing, guys, to go through a catechism. I know some people have different thoughts about catechisms, that it's, you know, you're brainwashing your kids. You know, a, a catechism is basically just a um, question and answer format of a bunch of different parts of the Christian faith. Um, so the Catholics have a catechism. I actually have that upstairs. I'm eventually going to read it. But the Catholic catechism is much, much longer than Luther's small catechism here. His actual, you know, full-blown catechism is much larger. Actually, I don't even know if this is hey, have, has a corresponding large catechism. I know there are larger catechisms such as the, the Catholic catechism. And they're just question and answer format. Um, really, really helpful and refreshing, honestly. Um, it's not, uh, you know, an extremely... I don't know, um, articulate read. It's not very hard to understand. Uh, it's very simple questions that are answered immediately after with, you know, his thoughts based on scripture. So he'll add a bunch of different scriptures that will, um, answer the question that is being asked. So here's, here's an, here's an example. What do the scriptures teach of Christ sitting on the right hand of God, the father? 
And then he answers, the scriptures teach that Christ, also according to his human nature, rules and fills all things with divine power and majesty. And then he quotes Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. God set him Christ at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above, you know, all principality and power and all that. But he's going to put all things under his feet. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of how this goes. And it's really refreshing just to have the scriptures really present and easy to follow right after, um, you know, a profound question is asked with a real quick, simple answer. It's very helpful. Um, He goes through the Ten Commandments and gives, um, you know, uh, interacts with and gives answers to each parts of the table, the two tables. Um, Then he goes through the Apostles' Creed and what's important about the Apostles' Creed. Um, He goes through all of the sacraments and how we ought to deal with baptism and um, the Eucharist and um, the office of the keys of the church, um, the power and authority of the church, all these things. Um, he goes through the Lord's prayer, why the Lord's prayer is perfect or as helpful, um, and, and perfect. Yeah. Perfect way to pray. So, um, good book worth picking up, worth reading Luther's small catechism. Um, uh, two, two things that I, um, disagreed with, um, on page 97 of the copy I have, um, which in Luther's small catechism contains, Question 114, does man still bear the image of God? This is his answer. Now, I, I, don't, I think Martin Luther wrote in German, Latin, a bunch of different languages, and this English translation we have is probably not what he originally wrote in. I don't think it is. So this could be a translation error. I want to keep people alive to that. But um, ultimately, I, I think that this is wrong the way it's worded here. Man lost the image of God when he fell into sin. In believers, a um, in believers, a beginning of its renewal is made. Only in heaven, however, will this image be fully restored. He quotes Genesis five three. Adam begat a son in his own likeness after his image. Um, I don't think we lost the image of God. That, that's what I disagree with him. Uh, I wrote in a little post-it note I put in here, man did not lose the image of God. He marred and distorted it almost to the point of unrecognizability, but still never completely lost it. That's what I put. And I put Luther's quite wrong. Genesis 9.6 and James 3.9. So Genesis 9.6, well after um, the fall of man, we still see that uh, the, the capital capital punishment is instituted in Genesis 9.6 because man is made in God's image. So he says, um, if man spills blood by blood is his, or by his blood is it required of him because man is made in God's own image. Um, so we see even after the fall, God uh, uh, saying that we did not lose the, his image, we, we distorted it and marred it, but that would be the, the distinction to me. Also, James 3, 9, um, it's talking about bridling the tongue. He says, with our tongue, we both curse other people who are made in the image of God and hate our neighbors and do all these other things. Um, and he just, he has a real quick aside there. He says that are made in the likeness of God. So I think we do still retain the image of God and it was just marred. Um, let me search for the other, um, here it is. On page, my page 115, um, we have the question, um, uh, question 147, has Christ redeemed, purchased, and won only you? Christ has redeemed me and, and all lost and condemned mankind. He quotes First Timothy 115. This is faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, acceptation that uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the, the chief. Matthew 18, 11, the son of man uh, is come to save that which is lost. John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. First uh, John 2, 2, he's the propitiation, uh, propitiation for our sins, and not, o- not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Second Corinthians 5, 15, he died for all. Um, 
I think he is applying these texts wrong. Bryce and I have an episode on limited atonement, or definite atonement is what we named the episode. So, so go back in the, in the episode archives and check out that, and I'll, I'll probably link it down below. But I do want to um, expose you guys to a, an alternative view on that. I mean, Martin Luther was a reformer, but um, you know, Calvin developed limited atonement more, you know, well after Luther came along. And um, th- again, this could be a translation issue, but if it really was worded like this in, in Luther's um, in, in Luther's small catechism that he wrote himself, you know, his first copy, if this really is what he meant, then I, I do think he was wrong in this. I wrote, um, Christ has redeemed only the elect. Christ's death is efficacious for the whole world, but he did not die for all people. He dies for his sheep, not the goats, um, not the goats and the sheep. He wants the whole world to repent, but not all will be saved. And then I, I put John 10, 7 through 18, where Jesus is talking about, he doesn't come down to lay down his life for the goats. He, he comes to lay down his life for the sheep. And if you are not a sheep, his his um, uh, Christ has redeemed me and all lost and condemned mankind. No, he's only uh, redeemed me and all of the sheep. That's what I would say. Um, so those are the things I disagree with. But besides that, everything in here was really good. Obviously, he has a different view of baptism than me because I'm a Reformed Baptist, Credo Baptist. He is a he does practices infant baptism. Um, so I thought that was helpful. He has an interesting view of confession. Um, the, the Lutherans still have uh, the priests. You, you'll come before a priest in uh, an act of confession. I also think that's kind of an odd practice. Uh, confessing, uh, not to say confessing our sins is wrong, but confessing our sins to other humans is good. We're supposed to bear each other's burdens. Uh, Galatians 5, I think. Um, so we, we ought to bear each other's burdens, but also we don't um, have to confess before a, a priest and then a priest to remind us. Uh, our brothers and sisters can do this as well. Um, and what he may mean by that is just that it's best for a priest to do it, um, that kind of thing. So yeah, I thought it was good overall, worth buying, worth picking up. Um, I think you guys would be edified and encouraged by that. The second book it was not theological in nature. It is a book um, written... I think like a hundred ish years ago, uh, by two time Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, Major General Smedley D. Butler, USMC retired. And it's called War is a Racket. Um, pretty popular book. I thought I'd pick it up just because it's a short read and I was interested in it. I've had it recommended to me a few times. Um, in this book, when he's talking about the Great War, he's talking about World War I. Um, he fought in World War I. And he basically just in this book walks through, um, World War II had not happened yet. That's why they called World War I the Great War because that's the first you know, great, great war they had seen up until World War II at an even larger scale with even more death. Um, but World War I, I think some people forget how like terrific it still was. The trench warfare was insane. I mean, the French did a lot better in World War One than World War II. They were actually very brave and heroic and they were actually taking the brunt of you know, the German forces as they marched through Belgium and they came down to France. I mean, there was a stalemate for a long time at the trenches and it was, it was pretty crazy. And there was a British expeditionary force that came down there and helped. Um, but yeah, it, it, totally different war, but very brutal trench warfare. And basically what he walks through in this book is the manipulation of the elites to get the populace to buy into a war um, for their own benefit. So he just basically walks through how much money a lot of these manufacturers made. So in the second chapter, chapter two, who makes the profits, he just walks through um, how they basically played on the person's nationalism or patriotism to have them buy things like Liberty bonds. And the bankers would basically devalue the Liberty bond and then, um, you know, buy it back from the populace when it would increase, uh, when it, when it would, um, 
decrease in value and then lo and behold, all of a sudden the value goes up and these bankers make a lot of money. Um, you know, you could just chalk that up to, oh, that was just kind of a random thing that happened. They weren't trying to do that. They really needed the populace to buy into this war, to, to buy these liberty bonds, to fund the war, that kind of thing. Um, just, you know, I, I would just say people usually have alter alternative motives um, in terms of making money and, um, you know, I would say I would probably side more with there are people that are definitely trying to make a dollar off of war and do not care about the soldier on the front line. Um, so, yeah, he has a few few interesting quotes in here on, on page 13 Does of my copy. Does war pay? It paid them, but they aren't the only ones. There are still others. Let's take leather. So then he talks he talks about how much leather um, – they made for the war and how the leather companies profited a 1400% increase in the value of valuation of these companies, international nickel company, sugar refining, um, copper, steel, um, so many different companies made a killing off of war. I mean, war does produce a lot of money. So basically he just critiques this whole, um, the war industrial complex thought process that, um, we need to be in a perpetual war to fund military equipment, you know, military, uh, it costs a lot to keep up with the latest technology, to train the men, to outfit the men, that kind of thing. Um, but basically it says who should be the ones that um, are getting us into war. Should it be a bunch of old dudes that are just going to lay back and not actually fight the war? It should be the young men that uh, vote if we're going to go to war or not, the ones that will fight the battle. Um, interesting thought. I don't know how that plays out exactly. I don't necessarily have a strong opinion, um, but – I do think there's some warrant to what he's saying. So I think there's a balanced view to you know, interact with what he's getting at here about how war people can have. Um, basically, his point is the people that are declaring war are the ones that are going to benefit from the war. They're going to make millions of dollars. Therefore, why would the people that are declaring war be the ones that are going to incentivize from it? Because wouldn't that make them more prone to say, hey, let's, uh, let's go to war. We need to go fight these people for, uh, uh, I don't know, what will the populace buy? What's going to be a good reason for them? I know my reason. My reason is to make money. That's basically his critique. Um, so yeah, um, I guess I would say that's those are the main points. Interesting read. Pick it up. Check it out. Let me know what you think. Uh, war is a Racket by Major General... Smedley D. Butler, who fought in the Great War, which is World War One. So those are the books I read this time around. Hopefully that was um, encouraging and helpful. Luther's Small Catechism, War is a Racket. Pick it up. I'll put the links in the description below uh, for the podcast and the notes. And um, yeah, I think it'd be wor it's, it's worth your guys as well. War is, a ra War is a Racket is a very quick read. Luther's Small Catechism, you can get to that quickly if you don't want to go tediously, um, you know, um, referencing all the, uh, the Bible verses he puts in there. But um, really good reads. Um, thanks for listening guys uh you can always go leave a rating and review um yeah thanks so much for listening um to god alone be the glory so deo gloria